Welcome to the March of History, episode 33, The Battle of Vosges, also known as the Battle of Vasantio. I am your host, Trevor Furness, recording again in the city of Huelva in southwest Spain, not far from the border with Portugal. And our episode today takes place in the modern-day area of Alsace, France. And actually, ironically enough, at least some of my ancestors come from this area, Alsace and Lorraine, which has variously gone back and forth between German control and French control throughout history, but it is modern-day part of France. But before we get started with episode 33, let me just remind you of what happened in episode 32. In our last episode, Caesar outmaneuvered Ariovistus and reestablished his supply lines by building a second, smaller camp closer to his supply lines than the Germans were. He then continued his strategy of trying to shame the Germans into an all-out battle. The Germans, for their part, were determined to avoid a pitched battle, so they attacked the smaller of the two Roman camps instead, and the Romans were able to fend them off and even take some prisoners. Caesar personally questioned the prisoners and finally learned why the Germans had been so hesitant to engage in a pitched battle. You see, the old women of the tribe, of the German tribe, who were responsible for divining the will of the gods, said that they couldn't win if they went to battle before the new moon. Caesar, upon learning this, realized this information was a golden opportunity and was determined to use it. And that is where we pick back up on episode 33 of the March of History. But before I start episode 33, let me just say real quick... If you want to get some visual context with these podcast episodes, and if you just want a daily dose of history and pictures of historical places, give the March of History's Instagram a follow. That's at the March of History, at the March of History. I post every single day some kind of either historical fact or or much more often historical pictures of different places. I go to my travels throughout Spain and And hopefully once coronavirus ends throughout all of Europe and I can get to Italy and Rome and post pictures of those areas as well. So it's a great visual format to follow along with the podcast and to interact with your host. Also, please leave us a podcast rating on the Apple Podcast Store if you listen on an Apple device. That helps the podcast to grow a lot and we would really appreciate it. But on to episode 33. So Caesar has this new intelligence, and he decides that based on this new intelligence, the plan that he had been putting into action up to this point was actually the right plan. And that plan, to remind you, was to lead out his troops each and every day and attempt to shame the Germans into battle. Obviously, it hadn't worked up to this point, but Caesar believed that that's simply because he hadn't pushed the Germans hard enough yet. And one of the reasons he thinks that this is the right strategy is because If he can push the Germans into battle, the Romans will have a huge psychological edge over the Germans. If the Germanic warriors believe that they can't win a battle before the new moon, then that will affect their confidence. And confidence is essential in any undertaking in life, but especially in warfare. And don't underestimate the effects of such a prophecy for a second in the ancient world. Ancient peoples were fierce believers in these kinds of prophecies, and these kinds of prophecies would definitely get in their heads. And even if some of the Germanic warriors didn't believe the prophecy 100%, it would still be a nagging doubt in the back of their minds. And in all of this, Caesar's goal is to force the Germans to fight with that nagging doubt 
in the back of their heads that they were fighting against the will of the gods, that the gods had decreed to them that they couldn't win a battle if they engaged before the new moon. And this would breed an atmosphere of defeatism and fear within the German ranks. Fear that they were fighting against the will of the gods and fear that they would incur the wrath of the gods for doing so. Caesar, for his part, as is true many times in his career, is focusing more on human psychology than battlefield tactics. And it seems the man knew his strengths well, because this strategy of focusing on opponent's psychology works repeatedly for Caesar throughout his life, and in various aspects of his life, in war and politics, and no doubt in love too. So, putting the old plan back into action, Caesar leaves a small garrison in both forts and takes the rest of his legions out to the open field between the Romans and German camps and again forms them in a triple battle line. He also lines his auxiliaries up in front of the small camp. And remember, the auxiliaries are made up of allied tribes, in this case Gallic tribes. And the reason he gives for doing this for lining up the auxiliaries next to the smaller camp and not with the rest of the legions is that he felt that the Romans had very few actual Roman legionaries in comparison to the Germanic army and how many soldiers that they had. And the auxiliaries boosted the Roman army in size, but honestly, Caesar didn't trust them in battle. So he lines them up near the legions, but out of the way of the actual battle. This way he can make his numbers look greater and this matters for purposes of intimidating the enemy, but he doesn't have to rely on them. And in an emergency, they're there, they're next to the battle, he can try to send them in, but they're not the people you want to rely on to win you a battle. And this is a very similar to the strategy that Caesar used in the Battle of Babracte against the Helvetii. In that battle, he lined up all of his legions and auxiliaries on the hill that the Romans were on, but kept the auxiliaries and inexperienced legions further up the hill, where they could look imposing and swell his numbers without taking part in the actual battle. This time, though, he is deploying the inexperienced legions as well as the veteran legions, which shows he is gaining faith in them and trust them in the heat of battle. And beyond this, Caesar never really specifies his battle formation as to which legion is placed where, but it seems likely he put the inexperienced legions in the center, in the middle, of the army between veteran legions who would man the flanks. As for the number of troops on each side of the battlefield, we don't have exact numbers, but I can give you a reasonable estimate for the Romans and the Germans. The Romans had six legions, plus auxiliaries, so if we assume that none of the legions are at full strength since they're coming off the battle of Bracte, in the same campaign season, I mean, we can estimate that the Romans have anywhere from about 25 to 30,000 men available to them. Now, the German side is much more difficult to say for certain. Caesar says that there were as many as 120,000 Germans in Gaul with Ariovistus at this point. However, I don't think that every one of these Germans was available to Ariovistus at this point in time, and all in the same area. We do know that Caesar describes Ariovistus attacking the Romans as they built their second camp and deploying an army of anywhere from about 22 to 28,000 men, depending on how you count the German cavalry. We also know that he held back much of his army from this skirmish where he attacked the second camp, so we can assume that he had a far larger force than this when it came time for the actual set-piece battle. 
So I personally think it's safe to assume the Germans had more soldiers than the Romans. And I've given you the numbers and the justification for why I feel that way, but I'm not going to give you an exact number because we simply don't know an exact number. And if I throw out an exact number as to what the Germans had, it would be pure guesswork on my part. Now, I had said that Caesar felt that his plan was a good one, but that he just hadn't pushed it far enough in previous days. Well, now, with his army fully deployed, he decides to push it. He has his legionaries advance closer to the German camp than they ever had done before. They get so close to the German camp that it's almost disrespectful. The message to the Germans is, We don't respect or fear you as a military. Look, we're walking right up to your fortifications and still you're afraid to come out and fight. This is basically Caesar sitting there as a commander and poking the Germans in the eye with a stick. He's embarrassing Ariovistus and the other German leaders. He's shaming the German soldiers who, by the way, are camped with their whole families. And these are proud warriors who don't like being shamed, especially not in front of their family and friends. And Caesar understands this. So, finally, the Germans can't stand to be disrespected like this and shamed like this any longer. Finally, they come out of their camp and they line up for battle, with equal intervals between each tribe, meaning that each tribe lined up in a horizontal line with a space between each tribe. Now, the Germans have some very unique things they do when preparing for battle. And one of the first things they do is they drag out wagons to form a kind of wall behind the back of their line. And this makeshift wall is to prevent them from retreating. But this also means that a controlled strategic retreat is also out of the question. They will charge forward and win the day or die fighting. That's the idea. And they won't keep any reserves. It's an all-out rush all at once. They put all their effort into the initial attack. And the women in the German camp have a role to play in this too. They would stand on these wagons with outstretched arms, with much weeping, and call on the men not to abandon them to Roman slavery. Essentially, they are reminding the warriors of what they are fighting for. And in past battles, such as at least one battle Caesar's uncle Marius fought, if the German men lost the battle, then the German women would come out screaming and attacking the Roman troops. And the Romans' troops found this to be bewildering and, and unexpected because usually ancient women did not behave this way. Now both sides are lined up and ready to fight. And you have to imagine the anticipation, the fear, the nervousness must have been palpable in both armies. Both sides are standing there waiting for battle to begin. Every one of these soldiers knows this day could be their last. And they know that if they die this day, it will likely be an agonizing, slow death. They are engaging in that type of combat that modern soldiers find so unpleasant. Hand-to-hand -hand combat. They are stabbing other humans to death. They have other humans ferociously trying to stab or slash them to death. And I don't mean this as a knock on modern soldiers, but this isn't like a battle with guns where the simple pull of a trigger from yards or even a mile away can end someone's life. No, in, in this sort of combat, you have to be close enough to your opponent to smell him, to see the fear or lack of fear in his eyes. 
You have to be close enough to see him as a person and not just an enemy combatant. There is no shooting in the general direction of the enemy and hoping you hit something. If you aren't thrusting or swinging your sword with deadly force and deadly aggression, you won't get the job done. And if you don't get the job done, then it's likely the enemy will. Half-hearted fighting without aggression is likely to get you killed. And at some point in this battle, you will find yourself utterly exhausted, barely able to lift your sword and shield, but you know that if you don't lift your sword and shield, you will die and your comrades next to you will die. And at some point, you may find yourself rolling in the mud with the enemy, so close to him that you can feel his pulse as you strangle it from his neck. Ancient warfare is often glorified, but the truth is, it was the most grisly of hellholes. And while all this fear and anticipation is being felt, Caesar is organizing his army. He puts five legates in a quaestor, each in charge of a legion. And in his words, he does this, quote, to act as witness to each man's valor, end quote. And this was big with Caesar's armies. He judged his soldiers by their bravery and valor and rewarded them richly for it. And the soldiers knew this and appreciated this kind of culture in his army. Now there's basically two different accounts of how the battle begins. In fact, there's two accounts that differ on pretty much how the entire battle happens. One comes from Caesar himself in which he is a first-hand witness of course, he has the potential for bias, seeing as he is a participant and not a neutral observer, and he's kind of the star of the show. He's the commander. It's called Caesar's Gala Commentaries for a reason, right? So he has the potential to be biased, and if we only have his word to go on, we don't know when he's doing that and when he's not. Now, just to play devil's advocate, of course, I could argue that no one who has ever told a story in history has not had some kind of bias or goal some kind of agenda that they're after, but that's a discussion for a different time. Now, our second source comes from a man named Cassius Dio, who I've talked about in previous podcast episodes. And re remember that, yes, Cassius Dio is a Roman, but he was born roughly 200 years after this battle in 155 AD. So in general, between the two, I'm much more inclined to believe Caesar, considering he was actually there at the battle and he was the commander. So I will be relaying more of his account than Cassius Dio's, but just want to make you aware of, of the sources we have to pick from and why I'm choosing one over the other. That being said, I'm still going to relay what both accounts say to you. Now, as for the beginning of the battle, Cassius Dio says that while the Germans were forming up, the Romans rushed forward and attacked them before they were ready. And to me, this makes a lot of sense. It's probably what I would have done in ancient warfare if I was the commander. Remember, this is not the gentlemanly variety of warfare from the 17 and 1800s. This is a savage form of warfare where the word war crime is an oxymoron. There are very few crimes in this kind of warfare, only winners and losers. So why give your enemy time to prepare in war like this? A war where losers lose everything. Woe to the vanquished, as the Gallic king had said to the defeated Romans way back in their early days, and the Romans never forgot that lesson. Woe to the vanquished. The vanquished have no rights. And typically what would prevent one side from doing this, from attacking the other side before they're fully deployed, is that 
Both armies are typically deploying at the same time, and neither attacks early because they're not ready either. But in this case, Caesar and the Romans deployed first and led their troops up to the walls of the Germans, and only then did the Germans come out. So the Romans were fully deployed and ready for battle while the Germans were still coming out of their camp and getting ready to fight. So it would make sense that the Romans sitting there would be like, why are, why, you know, if you're Caesar, why am I going to sit here and give these time, these guys time to get ready and prepared and ready to fight me? I'll just wait until half of them are out of the, out of the camp and then attack. But that's what Cassius Dio says. Now, in Caesar's Gallic commentaries, Caesar only says that he started the battle from the right wing and makes no mention of rushing the Germans before they were ready. And Caesar himself was commanding from the right wing. And he was doing this because he felt that this is where the Germans were weakest on their left flank and therefore the spot he could most likely gain victory from. And according to Caesar, at the signal for the battle, both sides rushed at each other so aggressively that there was no time or room to throw javelins at the opposing sides as they normally did before joining battle. Instead, the javelins were thrown aside and the fighting was conducted with swords. And the Germans quickly formed a phalanx or shield wall against the Romans. And this was smart on their part because normally the Romans broke these shield walls up, these phalanxes up, using javelins. They would throw the javelin at the shield wall. It would make the shield that it hit extremely heavy and unwieldy. It would pin two shields together and it would force the enemy to drop their shields. And pretty soon their shield wall has a lot of holes in it, in which case it's not very effective at that point. But remember, the Romans, because this battle had started so aggressively and so swiftly, had to toss a lot of their javelins aside. So they only have swords at this point. So this is why it's smart on the Germans' part to make the shield wall. But the Romans are fierce and brave fighters. It's not for no reason they conquered the entire Mediterranean. And the more aggressive Roman legionaries begin to actually charge the German phalanxes, leap up and onto the phalanx, tearing away at German shields and stabbing down at the huddled Germans. And this is a near suicidal act of bravery and had to be intimidating to the Germans. And it begins to work and takes a toll on the Germans and they begin to die from these sorts of attacks. Now the battle continues to progress and eventually Caesar's battle plan begins to work and the German left is forced back. And the Roman right, under Caesar's leadership, continues to push, and soon the German left is put to flight. But not all is well for the Romans, because on the Roman left, or the German right, things are not going so well for the Romans. The Germans, through sheer force of numbers, Caesar says, were pressing the Roman left flank. And on the outside of the infantry, Caesar has stationed the Roman cavalry which is really, yes, auxiliaries, so they're Gallic, but their commanders were Roman. And the commander on the left flank of the cavalry was none other than young Publius Licinius Crassus, son of Marcus Licinius Crassus, Caesar's ally and biggest benefactor in Rome. Well, young Crassus can see this issue unfolding. He can see the left flank of the Romans being pushed back and being beaten. He can see the Romans pushing on the right side and winning, and he can see an issue developing here. And despite only being in his 20s, young Crassus decides to seize the initiative himself. Now the Romans, as I said previously, are fighting in the normal three-line formation that they commonly used. 
and the first two lines are actively fighting and being pushed back on the left side by the Germans where Young Crassus is, and the third line is still held in reserve. Now, rather than wasting time in trying to find Caesar in the chaos of this battle, and Caesar's on the other side of the battle from Young Crassus, instead, he takes the initiative upon himself and Crassus orders the reserve third line into battle on the Roman left. And this act of initiative swings the battle back in the favor of the Romans, and soon the Germans begin to break and run. And in the Gallic commentaries, Caesar specifically gives credit to Publius Crassus for the initiative in this key point in the battle. And that's a detail that I have to think a lot of more petty commanders would have kept to themselves rather than announcing to the world in the commentaries. And of course, it made good political sense to boost the reputation of young Crassus while under Caesar's service, considering how powerful of an ally his father has been for Caesar, and considering how much Caesar owes to the senior Crassus, both in terms of money and favors done for him. But back to our battle... The Germans begin fleeing in mass, and they don't stop running until they hit the Rhine River, nearly five miles away. And a few of the Germans then try to swim the river or find boats and cross it this way. Ariovistus was actually one of these men and made it safely to the other side with some fellow soldiers. But the rest of the Germans are chased down and killed by the Roman cavalry, according to Caesar. This is an incredible victory for the Romans and for Caesar, and they are literally chasing the Germans back over the Rhine and killing the rest. As for women and children, not a lot is said in the commentaries, but it seems that they were all hunted down just like the men. Caesar says that Ariovistus had two wives, and both of these died while fleeing. And no source says, but we have to imagine that they were either butchered by the cavalry hunting them down, or that they drowned trying to cross the Rhine. Ariovistus also had two daughters. One of these was killed in the flight, the other daughter was captured by the Romans. Now that's all from Caesar's commentaries, but Cassius Dio has a slightly different account of the battle. As I already said, Dio says that the Romans charged the Germans before they were in full battle formation. And the fighting, he says, was in such close combat that the Germans couldn't utilize their spears or even their longswords. So the Germans began pushing and shoving with just their bare hands, fighting more with their bodies than with weapons. And Dio says that they were much bigger, physically bigger humans than the Romans, and so they fought with their hands and with their teeth, dragging the Romans down when they could and biting and tearing at them. And while this sounds fearsome and crazy... You can imagine it wasn't a very effective tactic, and the Romans were able to fight off these attacks, and the Romans, for their part, had short steel daggers, which worked much better in these close quarters, and the Romans had armor to protect them from the German blows that weren't being made with sharp objects, since they're using their teeth, they're using their fists. Armor does a great job of protecting against these kind of things. And soon the Germans, who were known for the fierceness of their initial charge, began to tire. And the Roman troops, known for their endurance, kept up the attack. And this was well known within the institutional knowledge of the Roman military. The Germanic and Gallic peoples attacked in a sort of frenzied, berserk kind of way and held nothing back. And it was intimidating to fight against, but if you could withstand the initial onslaught, they would tire out and then the tables would turn. 
They kept no reserves, and soon fatigue was the friend of the Romans. And Dio says that that's exactly what happened in this battle as well. Soon the Germans were all but defeated, but could not run either out of sheer exhaustion, or presumably, I have to think, because the wagons they had set up to block their own way behind them. And so the Germans began to gather in dense groups of around 300 people and form shield walls. And the Romans found it very tough to penetrate these shield walls because they didn't have their javelins. And just to remind you, the reason they don't have their javelins is because this battle started so swiftly they had to toss them aside. And Dio says that their swords could not reach the heads of the Germans in these shield walls, which was their only real exposed part. So similar to what Caesar says, the Romans started leaping onto these shield walls and raining down blows with their swords on the men below. And Dio says that this was actually effective, but that the Germans were packed so tightly together that even the Germans that died stayed standing from the press of bodies around them. And personally, I have to wonder about the fate of these wild Romans who leaped into these masses of Germans. Dio never says, but I have to imagine, like, yes, it may be an effective strategy, and you may be able to tear some shields away and stab down these guys below you, but eventually you're going to fall into this mass of Germans, and then they may not have enough room to stab you with a sword, but they can certainly stomp on you, and many, many people in history have died through stampede of fellow people, so I don't imagine many of these Romans jumping on these shield walls and surviving very long, but maybe I'm wrong, who knows. But eventually, through such tactics, the Romans are able to kill most of the Germans. And Dio outright says that their women and children were killed along with the warriors. And Dio also confirms that Ariovistus did flee and escape over the Rhine with a cavalry escort. So those are the two accounts of the battle that we have, the two detailed accounts. I give them to you both just so that you're aware they both exist, but personally I put far more stock in what Caesar says than what Cassius Dio says. And Caesar was there, and as I said, Dio was born 200 years later, but I still figured it would be good for the audience to hear both accounts, and it's still it's a really cool account that Cassius Dio tells about what happened at the battle. But going back to Caesar's commentaries... Caesar says that after the battle, he was personally riding with the Roman cavalry and hunting down the Germans. And as he was doing this, he happened to come across some Germans dragging Gaius Valerius Procillus in triple chains, even in the midst of their retreat. And while Caesar never says specifically in the commentaries, I imagine the Roman cavalry killed the Germans on the spot, and they certainly set Procillus free. And if you don't remember who Procillus was... He was the good friend of Caesar's, who was a Roman citizen and of Gallic descent that Caesar had sent either as an envoy or as a spy to Ariovistus' camp. And Ariovistus had called Priscillus and the other men that Caesar had sent with him as spies, basically. He had declaimed them as spies in front of his army and immediately clapped them in chains. And Caesar says that finding Priscillus alive and physically unharmed gave him as much joy as winning the battle itself. And Priscillus, for his part, then proceeds to tell Caesar a wild story. He says that three times while, the, while he was in German custody, lots were drawn in front of him to decide whether to burn him alive now or later. Those are his two options. And all three times the lots came back that he would be kept for later. And before they could try a fourth time, the Germans were defeated in this battle and Priscillus rescued by the Romans. So talk about dodging a bullet, or you might say three bullets. 
And it also always amazes me that the Germans didn't kill Priscilla's right away when, as they began to retreat and flee. Instead, they're dragging him in Caesar specifically says triple cha- chained, which is probably not a very fast captive to drag along with you. And for their troubles, they end up being butchered by the Roman cavalry. They would have been better off just killing him and running or, or just leaving him altogether. And later in the day, Caesar does say that they found the second Roman that was sent with Priscillus, a man named Marcus Medius as well, and he was alive and unharmed as well. Now this battle, the Battle of Vosges, was a massive victory for Caesar and the Romans. Remember, at times the Roman soldiers had been so afraid of the Germans that they had considered refusing to march altogether, but Caesar had cajoled them into following him and boosted their confidence. And in the end, Caesar's confidence in them proved correct, and they defeated the entire German army in a pitched battle. And of course, word of this victory spread through all of Gaul, and soon over the Rhine and into Germania itself. The Suebi, who had been gathering in their thousands along the banks of the Rhine to cross over and join Ariovistus, began to move back to their homes. And realizing that these people were in trouble, the Germanic tribes that lived near the Rhine turned on the Suebi as they headed home and slaughtered huge numbers of them. Remember, the ancient world is brutal. So you can sometimes people will look at this as Caesar and the Romans being these big bad imperial bad guys and these poor plucky tribes trying to resist him. But these tribes were just as brutal. They just lacked the strength to impose that brutality upon other people. And at times when you find they do have the strength, like these Germans living along the Rhine that suddenly saw the sway by looking weak, they will be just as brutal as the Romans are. It's just many of the times they lack the strength to be as brutal as they want to be. And with that, Ariovistus and Suebi will no longer trouble Rome in the future. And this was also a a massive year for Caesar as governor. Don't forget the Helvetii invasion or, or migration, take your pick on word, and this battle we just discussed with the Germans both happened in the same year. And Caesar, in the commentaries, even makes a point to say that he won two campaigns in one year. And with the conclusion of the second campaign, it's hard for anyone to deny that the balance of power in Gaul has shifted in a huge way towards the Romans. And if anyone in the free portions of Gaul was doubting this, Caesar now sends them an unmistakable message. Rather than marching his legions back to his provinces for winter quarters, Caesar winters his army in the territory of the Sequani. This is territory outside of Caesar's three Roman provinces and is not ruled by Rome. And this was the same territory that Ariovistus had just been demanding and lording over. And Caesar is now treating this territory as if it belongs to Rome. And let's be honest, it isn't surprising that this has happened. Remember what I said about inviting foreign powers to fight your wars for you never turning out well? Well, the Gauls hadn't learned their lesson after inviting the Germans into their internal affairs. They then invited Caesar and the Romans, and the Romans now had no intention of leaving. After all, they had just fought and died for this territory. Why should they then give up this territory to people who refuse to fight and die for the territory, or lack the strength to do so? And that, of course, is always the problem with inviting someone else to fight your war for you. Once they have fought and bled for your land, they feel entitled to it. 
Now, Caesar himself rode back to his three provinces to begin the governance and administration that he always kept busy with during his winters in Gaul. And that is where we will end today's episode of the March of History. But before we go, I have a few things I want to say, some announcements I want to make. There will be about a month break in episodes after this episode. And I I know that's not what the audience wants to hear, but let me explain why. This is because for the past seven months or so, I've been operating without any kind of episode backlog. And originally when I had launched the March of History in July 2020, I released 10 episodes all at once with three in reserve. And having a reserve of episodes like this helps me to plan episodes better and to take my time making sure they are organized and edited right. But during my move to Spain, all three of these episodes were released while I was getting settled in Spain and finding an apartment and getting settled in a new country, which takes time and effort. So since then, I've been operating with no backlog. And I'm now aiming to change that, which is why there will be no new episodes for roughly the next month. Another issue is that, or not an issue, but another uh, pleasant thing to say is that I'm also going on a 10-day trip to travel Andalusia. Uh, on another history tour, which is another reason why I'm going to have a delay in episodes, because while I'm traveling, it's very tough to record episodes, and if I'm in some foreign city, uh, it doesn't make sense for me to sit there reading books all day, doing outlines, right? So, because I'm trying to get this backlog, and because I'm trying to take this trip across Andalusia and see a lot of the history and and gain some historical insights for you guys and, and take lots of pictures for the Instagram and videos for the Instagram, there will be a delay in new episodes. And of course, as I'm on that trip, I will take lots of pictures for the podcast Instagram and Facebook accounts, and likely some videos too. Which brings me to my next point. I'm thinking that once we reach the winters of many of these years in Gaul, because Caesar spends nine years fighting in Gaul, it would be a good time to break away from our narrative to do a little discussion on some other topics before getting back to the Gallic Wars. So, in the next few episodes after this one, one episode at least is going to be about the history tour I do of, or that I did of Andalusia back in December and January. I'll tell you all about the cool history I saw and gave and give you an update on how life is going here in Spain. Lots of interesting things, and I think that. If you are interested in history and seeing all that history, then I think that it will be an interesting podcast for you. I went to Cadiz, I went to Granada, I went to Malaga, I went to Seville. So these are all cities that are loaded with history, lots of Roman history, but not all Roman history, just a a variety of different histories. So I'll talk all about that. And then after that, I'm not sure what order yet, but I'd like to do some episodes on what Caesar got up to in his winters in Gaul, and some episodes about Roman camps, which are really fascinating, I think. Some episodes about what the legions, what Caesar's legions did during the winters, and what kind of training Caesar put his legions through. And an episode on Caesar's officers, and who they were in Gaul, and how they helped contribute to his victories. And I'd like to do at some point an episode on the men behind the scenes, Balbus and Opius, who I really haven't mentioned at all up to this point, but were two men that were bankers and political surrogates and fixers for Caesar in Rome and and throughout his his travels. And they're guys that did a lot behind the scenes and really helped Caesar. But like I said, these are not going to be like the next five episodes in a row. 
I might do one episode on my Andalusia tour and then an episode on one of the topics I just mentioned, and then we'll get back into Gaul, and then maybe after the next year in Gaul, we do another one of these ideas I have for an episode, and so on and so forth. Anyway, that's it for the announcement. I just want to give you a heads up that we won't have a new episode for about another month, and that the next few episodes after this one will be related to Caesar, but won't necessarily progress the narrative. Okay, and the final thing I have to say is just a reminder, our Instagram, which you should definitely follow, it is quality content, is at the March of History. Uh, And if you're curious as to what I look like, there's videos of me going to see Columbus's ships, the Santa Maria, the Nina, and the Pinta, I think off the top of my head, (laughs) taking a tour of them, which they have models of in Palos de la Frontera in Spain, going to see the Alhambra in Granada, all sorts of cool videos and pictures. It's It's been mostly pictures up to this point, but I'm adding more and more videos into that content because I think it's a, it's a great medium. Our Twitter is at March underscore history. Our Facebook is The March of History, if you just search that. We have an email, history at gmail.com, if you want to send us any private feedback or comments or just make contact with us. You can feel free to leave us a review in the podcast store. We would really appreciate that, especially if it's five stars. It helps the podcast grow. And feel free to reach out to us on any of the social media platforms and make contact. We love to talk to our listeners. And also make sure to share the podcast with friends and family that like history and subscribe so you get notifications. That is it, and thank you for listening.